following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Hi, everybody. It's really nice to see you on such a beautiful evening. My name is Doug McGill. Uh, I've been coming to Common Ground for eight or so years. I'm a journalist and a teacher. I live in Rochester, Minnesota, and I run a meditation center down there. And every once in a while, I get the great pleasure and the great honor of speaking to my friends at Common Ground and to talk about and explore the Dharma in new ways. I gave the talk here this morning, and as I was coming through the door, Julian greeted me and said, you sure picked an ambitious topic to talk about today. So for those of you who don't know the topic title, it's Feeling the Love in Insight Meditation. Love. So we're going to talk about love. Can everybody hear me back there? Okay? Okay. But I really hope we do more than just talk about it. And for sure, the words that I say about love or the words that I quote from the teachings about love, and I do have a few books here. Have no fear, I won't read through them all. But for sure those words are, are almost insignificant compared to whether or not I, you, we can spend this time or any time that we're practicing to really touch and experience and know that we've experienced and even ultimately get some skill at experiencing love. And that's a theme I'm going to come back to several times tonight and then when we have Q&A, I hope we bring it out as well, is can we approach meditation as, as, a, uh, as, a, as a, uh, an encounter with love. Can we feel it? And can we know the feeling of it? And can we be confident that we are masterful custodians of the energy of love inside of us? Can we attain to that? To me, that's what meditation is about. The word even seems insignificant compared to that idea. And one reason I'm talking about this topic tonight is because in my own practice over the past year or two, I was starting to feel a bit like, and I've been meditating for 20 plus years or so, but I was beginning to feel a bit like the technique of meditation was crowding out the far more important question. And it's not even a question about meditation, it's in our life. Are we, uh, are we connecting with this immense power that we have inside of us as much as we like, as much as the world needs 
That's what meditation is about. That's what the spiritual journey is about. I think the, uh, we can learn the techniques of meditation in half a day, really. It's very simple. Um, but this other thing about knowing love inside ourselves, that's the, uh, that's the challenge. So let me read a little story um, that I think brings this out real nicely. This is um, a story that comes from Inquiring Mind magazine, published in Berkeley. It's uh, sort of like the, uh, the official journal of the insight meditation movement in the United States. And uh, this is an interview by the editor of the journal, Wes Nisker, with a lady named Julia Butterfly Hill. And uh, for those of you who may not know, she, she, she's a young woman who is an environmental activist. And um, she's famous for having climbed up a red, redwood tree and spent two years there uh, to prevent the tree and the forest around it from being cut down. And so here's Wes Nisker asking her some questions about that experience. And here's something she relates, an insight that she had as a result of that experience. She says, when I climbed up in that tree, I was new to activism, but I soon realized that we had become so good at defining what we were against that what we were against was beginning to define us. I saw the problem in meetings where activists were clear-cutting each other with their words and their anger. As people were talking, I could literally hear the chainsaws in their words cutting each other apart. I saw that the peace rallies had become anti-war rallies places where I couldn't even walk up close to the rally because of the way people were speaking through the megaphone. It sounded like they were dropping bombs. This all became clear to me about halfway through my time in the tree, when I was experiencing a lot of pain and really felt like I was falling apart. That's when I went deeper and realized I had climbed up in the tree, not because I was angry at corporations and governments, although I was angry at them, but because I loved the forest and I loved the planet and I loved this sacred life that we're all a part of. And so I began to approach all the issues from that place of love. So she frames the issue real nicely, I think. Can we also find that place of love within ourselves that allows us to uh, you know, move really effectively and positively in the world, um, at, at not only at no cost to ourselves, but in so doing, inviting forces of constant and continual replenishment. That's what we'll get if we move out of a place of love. And while we'll diminish ourselves, ultimately, if we just work out of a place of anger, anger only. And so there's actually, I think, a really interesting parallel between what Julia Butterfly Hill describes uh, was her experience up there in the tree and, and many of our experiences with meditation. And it's that point where she talks about being defined by what she's against. And what this reminds me of in meditation is that so many of us, me included for sure, we can very easily start to define ourselves as uh, or, or by why we're not good at meditating. So I'm the person who falls asleep every time I sit down on the cushion. I'm the person who, you know, I just, every time, five minutes after I'm sitting, I just want to get up and go do the dishes or, you know, go to work. Or I just fantasize all the time when I meditate or I just don't have time. Whatever it is, it's real easy to kind of bump up against the instructions for meditation and want to do it. And, and for somehow the, the negativity that we have around it becomes more 
more prominent than any positive feelings that we might be getting from it or any progress or any real connection with, with the love that I'm speaking of. And later, we'll, we'll, in this talk, I'll bring out some definitions of love given by Buddhism and the West. So if you're thinking about if, if, if the very appropriate question has come up in your mind about how vague the word love is in our culture and what Buddhism really says love is, we will get to that. But I wanted to get to this point about how we often define ourselves negatively as meditators. Because when we do that, it's, it's, it's really unfortunate because um, we've fallen into a trap there. We've, we've started to equate meditation with a technique. And we've started to think that if I can only just sit and follow the breath and come back to the breath every time my mind wanders and pull my earlobe when I get sleepy or whatever the instructions are, then I'll get that wonderful state of mind. I'll make progress towards enlightenment or whatever happens. The problem with that approach is it just doesn't allow us to have a vital uh, relationship with our own experience enough because techniques getting in the way at that point. And what I'm saying tonight is, and I'll bring out some quotes from some really good teachers on this, what I'm saying tonight is a way to a way to progress and evolve beyond that stage, which is pretty inevitable for all of us, I think, or most of us anyway. The way to evolve is to remember that the most energizing thing, the most inspiring thing, um, is to recall that the practice is about love and that we want to connect with what's loving inside of us. And we want to get skillful in recognizing what love means and all the different flavors of love that might come from meditation and in daily life. And as Julia Butterfly Hill says, just start to live more from that space. I would just be really curious to know at this point, how many people, because it just it would help me in terms of like the words I choose to speak in, how many people here have been meditating, let's say, more than a year? Okay. And how many people have just pretty, pretty much started meditating uh, like in the last few months? Okay. Got it. Still, I'll try to avoid the, the jargon terms, or if I use the jargon terms, I'll, I'll try to explain them right off the bat because I really want in this talk tonight, I really want to get to this simple level of what meditation is to just introduce some real simplifying ideas. Um, and for me, the most simplifying idea is, is this idea of love. Uh, in that same um, inquiring mind um, issue, there was an article where, um, again, the editor was interviewing Ram Das, who's uh, most famous for the book that he wrote in the 1960s called Be Here Now. And Ram Das is, is a Hindu, or he's, he's an American 
guy who teaches spirituality more from a Hindu base than a Buddhist base. And Ram Das was saying um, that that he often finds when he sits with Buddhists, especially in the Vipassana tradition, that they're dry. And um, that's the word that he used. And what he meant there was, you know, he was missing the um, the ecstatic dancing, the chanting, and the connection that that Hindu mystics often have with that juicy flavor of love. Um, that if you know the poet Rumi, he's good at, at evoking that. And Ram Das was missing that in uh, in this insight meditation that we follow here. And Jack Cornfield and Catherine Ingram, who are two teachers in this tradition, were agreeing with them and saying it would be a good step in the evolution of insight meditation in the West to start to incorporate more of that. And um, and so the three of them um, in this interview came up with uh, a phrase, loving awareness. Loving awareness as... Um, you know, so that awareness is not just this bright spotlight that we put on our internal life, but there's a gentleness to it, um, a moistness almost, you might say. And um, Ajahn Sumedho, who's another great teacher in this tradition, uh, the insight meditation tradition, he has a phrase which is um, affectionate curiosity. And that's, that's um, in contrast to... Um, the kind of technical word that's often used in this tradition, which is investigation, that we're supposed to calm our minds and bodies, and then with the clarity of mind we get from having settled our mind, to then investigate our experience. That's often the word that's used. And he, and so he's, he uses the word affectionate curiosity instead of investigation. So it's, it's, it just brings in. Can you feel how that kind of moisturizes the sense of investigation? It kind of makes it more of a, of a delicate. Um, loving um, interaction, and um, and so um, in the, in the guided meditation that we did tonight, I tried to to bring some of that in. So those of you who've been to Common Ground for a while know that a a word that's often used and deeply explored in this tradition, and rightly so, is the word dukkha, which means. Uh, usually translated as suffering, and it it very precisely uh, denotes um, the sense that so many of us have. I dare say every single person in this room has, right? That there's something about life that just doesn't add up. That is just you know, like even in the best moments, there's always a sense of uh, um, uh, an unhappiness or a uh, uh, discontent. And uh, there's a lot of definitions of dukkha, but but um, um, this kind of fundamental sense of things not um, being right or not fitting is um, is a key thing. But there's another word in the Pali language um, which the Buddha used, which is happiness, sukha, dukkha, suffering, sukha, happiness. And we rarely hear about happiness in, in this tradition. Um, and we're, we're, and there's fairly uh, rarely given instructions on how to recognize it when we feel it and how then to nurture it once we feel it. And, you know, this is just so important, right? This is so important because sukha is inside. Joy. There's so many names for love in this tradition. Joy. 
uh, rapture, happiness, ease. This is all inside of us, and we have to get good at recognizing it. We're all experts around here in recognizing our suffering. But how expert are we? Oh, that, that kind of... <laughs> yeah, we are, aren't we? <laughs> really good at that. But how, how good are we at noticing the, the full spectrum of pleasantness you know, that, that's so deep within us? And I didn't mention wisdom, too. That's another form of happiness in this tradition. It's all there. Um, so, you know, tonight is, is a, a night of uh, bringing out and bringing up these themes and, and asking how could we, um, how can we practice in a way that we put happiness and pleasure, you know, right in front of us and start to become skillful in those things. And when I say happiness and pleasure, I'm talking about love. I'm, I'm using different uh, different words, uh, basically meaning love. Again, there's some semantic issues that we'll have to deal with, and we will later on. But I'm kind of giving an overview here. Let me give you an example, though, from from um, the Buddhist teachings about that exemplifies um, what I'm trying to bring out here. And this is a passage from uh, it's a fifth-century Buddhist um, philosopher named Buddha Gosa, who uh, is considered one of the great commentators on uh, Buddhist teachings. He wrote a book called the Visuddhimagga, which is the um, kind of root text for insight meditation that is followed even today. It's a big, thick book like this, and it's very technical. Um, but there are times when Buddha, Buddha Gosa gets very poetic and evocative. And this is one of, the, one of these passages. And what he's doing is he's giving us um, a guide for noticing pleasure the pleasantness of meditation. So here's the story. A man who, traveling along the path through a great desert and overcome by the heat, is thirsty and desirous of drink, if he saw a man on his way, would ask, where is water? The other would say, beyond the wood is a dense forest with a natural lake. Go there and you will get some. He, hearing these words, would be glad and delighted. Going onward, he would see men with wet clothes and hair, hear the sound of wild fowl and peafowl, see the dense forest of green like a net of jewels by the edge of the natural lake. He would see the water lily, the lotus, the white lily growing in the lake. He would see the clear, transparent water. He would be all the more glad and delighted, would descend into the natural lake, bathe and drink at pleasure, and his oppression being allayed, he would eat the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorn himself with the blue lotus, carrying on his shoulders the roots of the mandalaka, ascend from the lake, put on his clothes, dry the bathing cloth in the sun, and in the cool shade where the breeze blew ever so gently. Anybody felt the cool breeze in here tonight? He would lay himself down gently and say, Oh, bliss. Oh, bliss. Thus should this illustration be applied. Here's the teaching bit. The time of gladness and delight from when he heard the natural lake and the dense forest till he saw the water is like joy, having the manner of gladness and delight at the object in view. 
the time when, after his bath and drink, he laid himself down in the cool shade, saying, O oh bliss, O oh bliss, is the sense of rapture grown strong, established in that mode of enjoying the taste of the object. Well, for a tradition that so often tells us to be careful of being trapped by the senses and the enjoyment of the senses, because those are often taught to be distracting of uh, the attainment of a spacious mind, indeed a loving mind, this is a pretty unusual passage, isn't it, in, in, in that context? When we think of the kind of classical teachings, when in fact you can go through the Pali Canon, which is the collected teachings of the Buddha, and you can go through commentaries and find lots of passages where in fact there are instructions to delight in the physical sensations and the emotional and spiritual sensations of skillful meditation. They're all there. They're there. Matter of fact, um, just as an example, there's a famous, you know, the Buddha taught many methods of meditation. One of the most famous is called Anapanasati, which is a 16-step meditation on the breath. And the, um, and the first four instructions are basically to sit down and to calm your mind by watching your breath go in and out. And then instructions five, six, seven, and eight are instructions to watch for the physical feeling of gladness and happiness that arise when you're meditating skillfully. And the words for those in Pali, the Buddha's language, are piti, which is uh, the, the uh, which is a, a kind of um, uh, bursting energetic uh, uh, joy. It's a very uh, physically um, bumptious kind of uh, energy. Um, very pleasant, um, sometimes intensely pleasant, and then um, and then to notice uh, the feeling of gladness, which uh, would be the word there is sukha, the one that I mentioned before, the opposite of dukkha. And and in fact, in the passage that I just read, I I translated joy and rapture, but um, the, remember during the part where he said the the way to apply this illustration is. Um, is to first notice that when the man sees the water, he has gladness and delight because he's moving from a desert, you know, into this into this clear natural lake where he can bathe and drink at pleasure. And he, from that, he has gladness and delight, and that's piti. That's piti. And the instruction in Anapanasati is to notice when piti arises and to enjoy it. And then um, in this uh, passage here. There is the time when, after you have had the bath and the drink, and you lay yourself down in the cool shade, and you say, oh bliss, oh bliss, that's sukkah. How many of us tonight have enjoyed the sukkah of that breeze coming in? Or the sukkah of just the breath going in and out? How many of us tonight were able to feel the release so that our, that our very own breath got easier. During the day with tension it often gets tight, right? But you know, in meditation we can often get to a point where we just feel a little bit of release there. That's sukha. So point being, there are instructions right there in the root text of Buddhism 
uh, to pay attention to these uh, sensations. And I just find as an individual practitioner that moving to this stage where I, I'm opening to to this level of teaching has been really important because it, it adds a lot of inspiration and a lot of um, a lot of um, uh, you know inducement. You know, well, I'm sitting. I, I might get some pleasure out of it. <laughs> um, it's deeper than that, but that's a but that's a part of it. And, and the Buddha was encouraging of it. Now, this is not to say that there aren't um, dangers. There, there, of course, there are. And in fact, the reason why so many teachers in this tradition, or one of the reasons so many teachers downplay this aspect, is because of the dangers. You know, it's, it's very easy if, you know, to turn meditation into chasing after pleasant sensations. But that's not what this is about. And you have to be aware of that, and you have to be careful about it. Um, you know, that chasing after pleasant sensation goes all the way from noticing, you know, pleasant physical sensations all the way up to noticing, you know, rapture at higher, finer states of realization. And the teachings are full of warnings about getting hooked on those as well. Um, I, I, I feel, and I think increasingly teachers feel, that it would be a shame to close ourselves off to the pleasant sensations um, to miss those, not only a shame, it's you're actually, you know, we'd actually be missing a very critical part of, of uh, 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 you know, classical med meditation instructions. You know how to do it right if if we miss this. Um, you know, we often again talk about, um, you know, being open to pain. Some teachers say the whole point of Buddhism is just to be open to our unpleasant experiences, and if we learn how to do that. That's a great, a great achievement. Well, I think that's true, but if you can open to the pain, you have to be equally open to the pleasure as well. And it's not wrong to use um, or unskillful to use pleasure as a um, a kind of um, uh, inducement, you know, uh, a kind of um, Attraction, you know, to feel the attraction to meditation um, from that. And just think how much we'd be uh, missing in life if we cut off our openness to pleasure. Always being mindful that we can't be grabbing at the pleasure because that would be the quickest way to lose it. Have any of us here had the experience of meditating and we get to a really wonderful place where we're, our mind is spacious and there seems to be a nice natural flow in the attention and the awareness and then suddenly the mind goes, wow, this really feels good. This really feels good. And then what happens? Yeah, it's gone because you're getting grabby. And you start to think, oh, I never want this to end. Well, that's when it ends. And um, it's just knowing that that's what the mind does is, is, uh, is what's the cure, you could say, for that. 
So, um, but again, you know, the idea is to continue to be open. Okay, so let's let's talk about um, let's let's do this necessary component of any talk about love in the Buddhist tradition by asking how does a Buddhist conception of love differ from what we here in the West might think of as love? So since I've been giving talks on this down in Rochester for the past couple of weeks, um, I got an email from somebody in my group and he said, you know, our recent uh, talks about love have got me thinking about love. And so now he writes, I'm thinking about my 19 year old daughter and her boyfriends. I'm thinking about People Magazine. I'm thinking about Ryan O'Neill and Allie McGraw. Love means never having to say you're sorry. I'm thinking about an auditorium of Christian charismatics with their arms raised, swaying back and forth, feeling the love of God. And I'm thinking about my love of peanut butter. And uh, I thought this was a wonderful email because he was bringing up a lot of what love means in our modern Western culture. So in that short paragraph, I saw Hollywood love. I saw teenage love. I saw ecstatic religious love or one of the versions of ecstatic religious love. And I saw the love of sensual things, peanut butter, or it could be dove bars, or whatever it is for you. Um, you know, uh, romance novels, or um, the beach, or um, w whatever. Um, and I think one of the one of the kind of threads we can we can see in um, in in this kind of loose amalgam of love is that love doesn't really mean one thing um, uh, here in the West. It means a lot of different things, um, but there are some similarities in, in the quality of love that each one of these different loves has, and that's very different and distinct from love as it's defined in the Buddhist tradition. And I, I point to two qualities in all of the above that I mentioned, the religious love, the Hollywood love, the teenage love, the I'm in love. That's a big one, right? Um, all those aforementioned loves, the ones that we use commonly um, here in the West, uh, are love that's highly directed and targeted towards specific objects. So it's I love my wife, I love my kids, but I don't love my, I mean, I'm not really thinking about my neighbor. You know, I have the group of people that I love. Fair enough, right? I mean, that's familiar to, to all of us. I have the group of people that I love, and then there's people that are kind of around that area, not so much love, kind of a mixture, and then there's a bunch of people I don't know, and then there's people I really don't like. And love is for this group in here, that special group. So you see how it's it's targeted, and and it's similarly similarly targeted to um, uh, sensual objects. I you know love steak, or I love ice cream, or I love um, Thai food, or I love peanut butter. But it has to be crunchy peanut butter and not creamy peanut butter. And it has to be this brand of crunchy peanut butter. And it can't be too oily, and it can't be too dry. Otherwise, I'm not going to love it. It has to be just right, and then I can love it. 
So there's a lot of conditions put on love in this type of love. And the same goes for boyfriends and girlfriends, husbands and wives, doesn't it? Um, the, other, the other thing that's similar in all these Western conceptions of love is there's a built-in sense that I need to be loved back. That I'm putting out my love on the condition that I get love back. So I love my boyfriend or girlfriend as long as they love me. If they stop loving me, that's it. It stops. My, my outflowing of love stops. Um, even religious love is like that to some degree. And for many, you know, I love God, but it's because God loves me. You know, there's this circuit that's going like this. Not all, but that's very frequent in, in, in a religious sense of love. And, um, and so on. Now, the, the counterpoint to that in, um, in the Buddhist tradition, love isn't defined that way at all. And there, in fact, is no word in the Pali language, which is, again, the language that the Buddha spoke and taught in. There is no word that translates directly from our love uh, you know, into, into the Pali language. Instead, there are many words that define different flavors of one basic kind of love. And the one word that's used to describe that one uh, kind of root love is metta, M-E-T-T-A, metta. It's known um, in Sanskrit as maitri. And um, somewhere in here, I've written down some uh, definitions of, uh, of metta or maitri. Um, there's a great uh, meditation teacher in this tradition named Ayakima, and um, who's really well known for her metta meditations. There's a whole branch of meditation in this tradition that are metta meditations. They're meditations that are, in a sense, they're the exception to that generalization that I made earlier, that there's not a lot of focus on sukha and on love in, in insight meditation. The exception is there's a class of meditations within this tradition, fully within this tradition, called metta meditations, which are explicitly designed to allow us to contact the source of metta or love within ourselves and to support it and to allow us to nurture it and make it grow. Those are metta meditations. And um, Ayakima is very well known for her metta meditations. And they have names that begin to give us a sense of what metta is like in the Buddhist conception. So one of her famous meditations is called um, the flower garden of my heart. And in that meditation, she talks about, um, she encourages people to, to, to see their heart as a garden where you can go in and pick flowers and give those flowers to people all day long. You can be doing it mentally, just with the imagination. And the, the, the garden is magical because the more you cut the flowers and give them, the more they grow up. In fact, it's quite a lot like actual gardens, isn't it? So someone this morning came up to me later and said, I'm, I plant perennial uh, flowers in, my, in the garden of my heart. Perennials. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's real. It's not only imagination. You know, real flowers work this way and real gardens work this way. But so, um, so that's one conception of the heart. And it gives you a flavor of what metta is like. The more you give it, the more you get. Another one of her meditations is called the radiant sun. Another one is called... Uh, fountain of joy. And another one that she uses is called the most beloved. And in the most beloved, 
the instruction is to think about the person who is most beloved in our life, each one of us. And, and just spend some time to be with what that feels like. It might be a person, it might be a parent, it might be a spouse, it might be our pet, our dog or a cat or a bird or something. But there is a sense of, um, in that most beloved, there will be a sense of, most of the time, quite often anyway, a kind of boundlessness, you know, of love and a purity of love, a purity. You know, it, it doesn't have a tinge of, uh, you know, I'm only going to love them if they love me back. No, it's not like that, this type of love. A lot of parents have that for their kids. I love this child. I will always love this child no matter what. It doesn't matter. There will always be endless love for this child. If you can touch that, you know what Ayakim was talking about when she talks about the most beloved. Now, the skillful practice of Buddhism, then, is to, once you've tasted that, once you feel it, and this gets back to what I was saying at the beginning, it's so important to feel it. Feel confident that you know what that feels like. Live in it. Then use meditation and use reflection in daily life to blow on that, blow on that beautiful spark of pure, boundless love and let it grow. Let it grow in your heart. Let it grow from a little spark to a little, you know, little wisp of smoke coming out of the tuft of shavings. You know, let it burst into flame with each of our breaths. We can think about these images, you know, how we nurture it within ourselves until we finally have a good, strong, you know, furnace just blasting out metta. Um, Ayakima defines metta as warm and kindly feelings towards ourselves and others, all beings. So, does that, that's, that is a very concise definition of metta that's in great distinction to the modern, you know, Western love that we have. It, this is warm and kindly fe feelings towards ourselves and others, all beings. The Buddha, oh, well, before I get to the Buddha, I think many of us have heard how the Dalai Lama has defined um, uh, metta. He, he, he has, he's famous for a phrase, my religion is kindness. And kindness, the kindness that he's talking about is metta right there. And the Buddha has said, uh, one of his great lines is, um, the natural mind is radiant and pure. So there you have metta, radiant. It's from one source, but it goes in all directions. And it's pure. It doesn't have any sense of holding back or a requirement for reciprocity. Those of you who have been um, here and listened to talks by Mark or maybe gone to some of the meta meditations are familiar with the Brahma Viharas. And uh, the Brahma Viharas are um, the, uh, the direct translation for them is the divine abodes. Ayakima, the same teacher I had quoted from before, 
has some very, very remarkable things to say about the Brahma Viharas. And in the context of love, I, I think it's, they're very, um, very, very pointed and very useful comments. She says, the Buddha spoke about four supreme emotions, which are the only ones worth having. That line really stopped me in my tracks. What? There's only four worth having? All the others can be usefully discarded or replaced with one of the four. Since I read that a couple of weeks ago, many, many times I've I've had another emotion besides one of the four. (laughs) And I've said to myself, okay, can I do a little discarding and replacement here? Would it work? And I've tried it. Now, the four emotions are, you won't be surprised to know the first one is metta. And in fact, the other three are metta too. It's all metta. So, she could as well have said, there's only one emotion worth having. Truly. They're all metta. They are all the radiant and pure heart that we all have within us. And that we feel when we touch the feeling of the most beloved. But, in the same way that every person is the same, has two eyes, a nose, a mouth, two ears, you know, and yet we're all different. So, too, does metta take on a different appearance, you know, at different times and under different conditions. And the four main ones are the four Brahma-viharas. And it's helpful to distinguish because we often will find ourselves in a situation where uh, metta alone, which is the loving kindness that's just outward bounding and well-wishing for all beings, uh, you know, we, we find ourselves wanting a slightly different approach to metta to apply to this situa- to a situation. So the second of the four uh, emotions worth having is um, uh, karuna, which is compassion. And this is metta that has the flavor of not wanting another being to suffer. It has specifically, it means you are encountering suffering, you are encountering suffering, and you wish that there not be suffering. So metta is just outward well-wishing, non-judgmental, unconditional love for all beings. Karuna, compassion, has the sense of you're, you're meeting a being who's suffering, including yourself, it can easily be yourself, and just wishing that that person or that being not suffer. That's the second emotion. The third emotion is, is uh, in the Pali language, is called mudita. And that is metta that has the flavor of uh, taking joy in another person's happiness. And mudita doesn't get as much airplay as metta and karuna. But in a sense, it's the, it's the one where we can sense the... Uh, the taint, you might say, or the impurity that can that can get into into true well-wishing, because we can have we can have joy when our when our kids are joyful or happy or successful pretty easily, right? Most of us can really feel that. But a lot of times, like even if a close friend is truly successful, or um, or someone just slightly outside that orbit. You know, it's, it's sometimes hard to, like, truly feel joyful because there's this, a tinge of, oh, if I was, you know, that could be me. 
just a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy. You know, it's just not it's just not full, open-hearted joy in their joy. So the practice here is to see: can we feel full joy, untainted joy, for others? And the fourth um, emotion worth having, according to Ayakima, and the fourth Brahma Bhara is equanimity. And equanimity out of the four flavors of metta, this is the one that that feels quite cool. The other three have a warmth to them. Equanimity introduces a sense of a bit of distance, you know, a sense of um, uh, you know each being being on their own path in life. And no matter how much we love them, how much we want good for them, how much we take joy in their joy, we're still separate beings. And there's just a limit to how much we can do. And equanimity is the understand is that understanding, and it's it's the one of the four Brahma Viharas that brings in wisdom the most because wisdom says there's just this, just so much you can do for another being, and it's very important as we feel as we feel metta and compassion and sympathetic joy. It's also very important to uh, to feel you know to have wisdom also part of that. That. You know, there's, there's, you know, we're all separate beings, and as they say in Buddhism, everyone is heir to their own karma. So I wanted to end today. We have 15 minutes, and what I wanted to do, I wanted to get interactive, and um, and start to ask you, you know, what's your experience with love? I'd really love for people to share that, um, and because uh, that's what that's what it's all about, um, is is and, and and for each of you to. You know, be asking, as I hope you have been tonight, how does all this relate to my experience? And I thought a, a good way to kind of get that conversation started was just to read um, some very, very short passages from a wonderful new book from a teacher in this tradition called uh, Gil Fransdahl, um, named Gil Fransdahl. And he wrote a book called A Monastery Within. It's just published in the fall. And it's a book of short sayings. You can see here, they're just like, sometimes they're just three or four sentences long. It's about an imaginary monastery that's run by a wise nun called the Abbess. And the stories, each one of them present uh, someone who comes, a spiritual sojourner, comes to the monastery and asks the Abbess a question. And then she gives an answer. That's the structure to these. And every one of these little stories is about love, I think. Some of them are directly, and some of them are indirectly. They might not mention the word love, but but the ideas that I've been bringing up tonight about love from a Buddhist conception and how to skillfully use it are modeled in these little stories. So I thought might might just read two or three of them, and and then ask you how do you interpret them from the vantage point that we've been exploring tonight. So let's see. Here's one. Here's one called Breathing. Breathing. A scholar came to the abbess and explained, I have spent a lifetime studying Buddhism, and it has not helped me much. What am I missing? What is it I need to understand? To prepare the scholar for her answer, the abbess sat silent for a while. Then she said, Breathe in an easy and relaxed way, and then study what causes you to lose that ease. 
everything you really need to know about Buddhism will be found in that investigation. So, is that little story about love and the way we've been thinking about it so far tonight? Anybody want to hazard a thought? Yeah. And feel free to bring in your own, you know, experiences with breathing. Or, yeah. And what's your name? Paul. Paul. Yeah. I appreciate this talk. Um, I remember I took a workshop on, um, it was on beauty, was the title. It was here. And mm-hmm. I said, um, we should just think of ourselves as students of happiness. And, uh, um, and, and like, just, you know, for this workshop, it was, uh, yeah, like, you're a student of happiness. And the teacher really asked, like, why it is joy arising? What's the way of joy arising? Take a walk. Just ask, well, why aren't you happy? So, like, the whole path is about the obstacles that are getting, that are getting in the way. Just natural joy. Yeah. And that was really, um, you know, instructive. And so, yeah. um, that was one comment I wanted to make. And the second comment was, um, you know, uh, I have two kids whom I love very much. And and um, I was reading a text today and it said, and the Buddha said to, I think it was Ananda, those who are dear to you will cause lamentation, suffering, pain, grief. And, uh, and if you are not dear to you, then they won't cause, you know how you always put it, they won't cause lamentation. Right. And I find it really difficult. Um, like I know I'm very attached to my family, but I know my greatest fear is losing them. And I can, you know, I get those moments right. What happens if they don't die? I still, I love them very much, but um, it sounds like uh, I don't know how to love them yet without attachment. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine that's something to do with the equanimity. But it seems hard to reconcile. I mean, the Buddha didn't have that problem. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I almost wouldn't want to hazard a comment, especially on the second part of your statement, because I just think you uttered a truth about the way it is for us human beings. And um, yes, I think there are skillful ways to deal with with uh, that kind of uh, conflict or irreconcilable, apparently irreconcilable feelings. The striving to have spiritual freedom, but at the same time, you know, loving our kids and, and our loved ones and feeling so attached. Um, for me to, and I could do it, I mean, and maybe I will, but I mean, to, to mention some of the techniques to deal with it would almost cheapen, to me, the, uh, the poignancy of the dilemma that you just pointed out. And I think just feeling the poignancy of it is what our job is, our first job, truly. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's that tightness of, of desire, of, uh, of attachment, that um, 
that we often call a call love into, but it might not be. One of the notes that I made to myself before this talk was I said, and I, I think this is a good time to bring it in, happiness might not be what we thought it was. You know, love might not be what we thought it was. This, this practice may bring us to that point. That can be very scary. That can be very scary because it means a lot of letting go. And in my own practice, I think I am, I am constantly discovering the truth of, of that. And every time I do, I release a little bit, but not fully. I'm still dealing with the same things that you are. Um, having said that, I will mention the, the, there are equanimity meditations that I highly recommend anyone to look into um, as a kind of, and you, you, you yourself said, you know, this is where equanimity should come in or will come in. There are equanimity prayers, there are equanimity meditations that are really, really good when it comes to people dealing with that feeling of, you know, really tight attachment to, to the loved ones. And, um, and, you know, try that and see see how that feels when it comes right up to the great love that you feel for your for your family. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, Eric. Hi, Eric. My, my kids are older. Describe the process of letting go and receiving back, but the, the letting go has to be full and, and, and open-hearted. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Marilyn. Hi, Marilyn. I have a, a real conflict going on right now. My my, my youngest daughter, when she was eight, um, developed a, a chronic illness, and of course, my, my, my deep love for her then became very caregiving. Love that was probably beyond what you normally, a person would normally do with an eight-year-old. But she's now in her thirties, has three children, continues to be very sick, and her husband has decided he no longer wants her sick as well. And so then I caught in this conflict about wanting to love her in a mature way. She is a grown woman now, and mm-hmm. she has her children, and can decide whether or not she stays married. 
-hmm. and go back to being that, that, that bear woman. Mm -hmm. Don't touch my child. Mm -hmm. And which one is the greater love? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I think I'll be the bear woman. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that can often be very effective. Um, that's describing to me a situation that brings in brings to mind, you know, there are other parts of the Buddhist teachings. Um, when one has the uh, urge to, to be the bear woman, um, to be aggressive, to be um, harsh, even, um, uh, to say things that will discomfort, that will make other people, some other people, uh, uh, ill at ease and, and very, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. And, um, you know, there are instructions um, in the Buddhist tradition for getting to that point as well. It's not always unskillful to be. Um, you know, very uh, assertive in those ways. And the key there is, and this is a whole number, another topic, the key there is, is, the, is the quality of the intention. Intention. And, and again, it always comes back to meta. If you could be assertive or even aggressive or even harsh with meta as the intention or with, or with compassion, then it can be skillful. In fact, it cannot be harmful, ultimately, if your intention is, is purely metta. can't. And this is another interesting thing about the Buddhist path. You know, it doesn't make wimps of us all. Um, and a lot of times love is not what it seems, what we normally would think of it. it. It can take on these other aspects and these other forms, including things that look scary, that make loud noises. Um, very rarely violent, in my my view. Very rarely, very very rarely. But but they can be scary and you know, domineering and aggressive for sure. So it's that quality of the intention. Again, if you can go back and say and, and say to yourself, is this really pure metta? That's a good sign that you're on the right track, no matter what form the expression takes. Okay, I guess we should end it there. Um, I'll, I'll read you just one more. Because I think this is this is just a three sentence one to end on. I just and it is on love, and I think it's a wonderful thought to end on. Giving a brief sermon, the abbess once said, "A hot furnace does not need to be heated. A loving heart does not need to be loved. Being loving is more important than being loved." I thought that was nice to end on. So thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.